So over the past uh, two years, we've come uh, really back and forth to uh, the book of Romans. We've done kind of about five weeks here or eight weeks here, um, and we're going to return now to the book of Romans, I think, for the next five weeks, and this will, will actually be our last look at the book of Romans. We'll actually finish it uh, by the end of five weeks, and uh, hopefully you've discovered, as I've been reminded, uh, that the book of Romans really is a masterful book uh, written by uh, the Apostle Paul to this precious church uh, in the city of Rome. And uh, throughout the past two years, we've called uh, this, this uh, series the series of mysterious absolutes. And what we mean by that is that the book of Romans contains uh, what we call the absolutes of the gospel. Uh, the things that uh, we really must believe in order for each one of us to uh, experience uh, the gracious gift of grace, uh, the salvation of God. Uh, but just because those truths are absolute doesn't mean that we really have them all figured out. And so uh, much of what we've looked at um, has been wrapped in the hidden mysteries of a God who is holy, who we can't always understand. And so what we're called to do is to, to really grasp by faith those things that God has revealed, uh, but we also need to trust him with the things that he hasn't revealed, uh, to often trust him with uh, the mystery. And so the book of Romans for the first half talks about all these doctrines, all these important absolutes that we're supposed to believe. And then when you get to the second half of the book, it talks about how we are to practically apply those doctrines, how we're really to live them out in the context of our relationships, uh, in the context of the community of faith here uh, in the church as well. And so our passage this morning is in that second section, and I'm going to be reading uh, from Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 1 to 12. Hear God's word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but, do, but, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God." For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself. 
to God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to our heart, uh, that your Holy Spirit works through it uh, to change our lives, to change our thinking, to change our will and our emotions, to change everything about us. So we pray this morning, Father, as we meditate on your word, uh, that your spirit would visit us and change our hearts as a result. We pray it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, like peering into any relationship, we always are bound to find all sorts of messiness, and often we find lots of controversy. And this was certainly true as we've peered into the life of this church in Rome. We discover messiness, we discover controversy, and though we don't know all the details of everything that was going on in this church, we can begin to put together some of the details about a controversy that they were dealing with within this uh, congregation. And what we discover is that really a controversy had had arisen up between two different parties that were within the church. And the Apostle Paul labels one of those parties the weak party and the other the strong party. Now I always imagine when Paul writes this that he's putting those air quotes when he uses these definitions, though that certainly doesn't come through in the Greek translation. But what we do know is that Paul was addressing these two groups and there had been a divide that had sprung up between two of them. And when Paul writes, he is writing specifically that the group, to the group that he labels the strong group. And he offers correction to them. He really offers correction to both, but he really gives it to the strong group. And so who are these two groups? Who are these people? Well, what we can try to piece together is this, that it appears that those who are labeled weak are those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ from the background of Judaism. And because of their Jewish background, they believed that it was still very important for them to strictly keep the kosher or the dietary laws of the Jewish tradition, and at the same time to hold very strictly to their uh, Sabbath observances that were a part of their tradition. Now they, of course, understood that Jesus came to redefine all these things, but in many ways their conscience, that, that inner voice inside of them, still felt bound to keep all of these former dietary and Sabbath laws. Now the strong, the other group, seems to be those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ from a different background. They were uh, Gentile Christians, maybe they'd come out of some sort of, of paganism, but for whatever reason, they uniquely had grasped the freedom and the liberation that comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Now what's true about probably both of these groups is they, they had their position, They had their opinions, and they no doubt judged the other group. I'm sure that the the Jewish Christians had judged the Gentile Christians as, as really being too loose or licentious when it came to their faith. They, they believed that the other group had kind of taken the liberties of Jesus Christ a little bit too far. But I'm sure the opposite was true. 
that the Gentile Christians looked at the Jewish Christians and said, well, they are far too legalistic. They are burdening them themselves with, with too much of rule observance and too much of the old way. Don't they know that all of this is really about the freedom that comes from grace in Jesus Christ? And so both parties really believed that they were right. Both parties believed that they were better than the others. Both parties, in some ways, had fallen victim to their own brand of pride and self-righteousness. And so Paul comes along, speaking mainly to these stronger brothers, but really his message is to everyone in the church on both sides of the controversy. And what he does is he establishes for all of them a very, very simple principle. And his principle is this, welcome each other and don't pass judgment on each other. You see it right from the beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. So what Paul is essentially saying is this, don't be lost in any sort of self-righteousness and pride, but instead welcome each other into the fellowship of God and don't be caught passing judgment upon one another. You see, all of these categories that were true back then and are also true now, categories like strong and weak, uh, categories like rich and poor, clean or unclean, uh, things like valuableness or uselessness or messy or together, all of these categories really should not exist when it comes to God's people, the church. All people, no matter what their category, should be welcomed into the fellowship of God's people. And in fact, God designed the church to be the one institution in the whole world where categories like this just don't exist. And even if they do, they should not interrupt acceptance or fellowship amongst God's community. And so what Paul does is he establishes the principle, and then Paul's a very logical writer. He establishes a principle, and then he gives really three reasons as to why this principle should be held. And the first principle we see in verse 3, where Paul essentially says this, God has welcomed them, so you should as well. Verse 3, God has welcomed them, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. Uh, when I was thinking about this this week, I, I reflected back on, on my freshman year in high school. And, and freshman year in high school is difficult for everyone, uh, but it was particularly difficult for me because I was starting at a brand new school where I really didn't know anybody. I knew a few people, but I didn't know anybody who was in my grade. And what made me most nervous about this, and this was a, a very true anxiety and a very real thing, is I wasn't sure who I was going to sit with during lunch period. That was my big concern. And so I go to this new school, and lunch period comes along, and I don't have anybody to sit with. So I do the thing that nobody ever wants to have to do. I sat at the teacher's table. In fact, I had a great friendship that was struck up with a chemistry teacher who wasn't even my teacher. But he was a nice guy, and so for the first half of my freshman year, I got to have lunch with the chemistry teacher every single day. 
But I can remember as the semester went on, I started to make friends throughout the school, and I made friends with, with one particular uh, cool kid, we'll label him, uh, in the school. And I can remember distinctly the day where this cool kid welcomed me at lunch to sit at the cool kid's table. Now, I didn't know anybody else at the cool kid's table, but I did know this one guy, and he had me sit with him, and it was okay with everybody else at the cool table because the one cool kid that was my mutual friend welcomed me. And if he welcomed me to the table, then everybody else was going to welcome me as well. He gained access for me into that table fellowship. Well, in some ways, that image is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that God himself has chosen certain people to be recipients of his great grace. He has chosen people to be adopted into the family of God regardless of what any category we may place them in. God himself has brought them into the fellowship, into the church, and if God has accepted them, then why can't we? Who are we to reject someone whom God has chosen to adopt? You see, God is a relational God, and he created each one of us to be relational beings. And he gives us this thing called the church in order to walk with one another in the journey of faith. And that's essentially what he's talking about in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. And so we are all a part of this thing together. And so if God enters into relationship with others, no matter what, we are to do the same as well. And friends, when you think about it, this is the thing that makes the church the most unique institution in all of the world. Almost every other institution in the world, we get to choose who we spend time with. We get to choose who we work with often. We get to choose who we play with. We get to choose who we socialize with. All that is up to us, but not in the church. The church is the community that God chooses for us. And he calls us to love all sorts of people within the context of that community. But one of Paul's other points is this. His second point in the passage is this, is that we're not just a community— Actually, we are a family. And so why should we welcome all people into this fellowship? We should welcome them all because we're all a part of the same family. Look at verse 10, the word Paul chooses to use. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? When I thought about this, I couldn't help but think about the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son that, 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 uh, that uh, Jesus tells uh, in the book of Luke. And it's a story about two sons. One is the older, dutiful son who's done everything his father always wanted him to do. And then there's the younger brother. He's the licentious one of the crowd. He's the one that, that wastes his life and in his inheritance on wine and women and song. And at one point in the story, he departs from the family but recognizes his mistakes. He returns back into the family, and what does the father do? He greets him from afar, he welcomes him back into the family, and he throws a lavish party for his son, who he thought was dead but now has been found alive. But what we also miss in the details of that story is the older brother, And what was the older brother's reaction? Well, he refused to attend this party 
that his father had thrown for his brother. He is consumed out in the fields by his own anger and his own self-righteousness. And at the end of the day, the tragedy of that story is this, that his self-righteousness was the thing that kept him from the party that was thrown by the father. Because of his self-righteousness, he could not participate in the party of God. And so, friends, we are reminded that often it is our self-righteousness that keeps us from our brothers and sisters. We have to ask ourselves, how often does our self-righteousness get in the way of our ability to love others, especially those whom God has placed in the church for us to love. You see, the scriptures call all of us a family. They tell us if God is our father, then we are siblings together in this family of God. And we can't let harsh and a critical spirit, harshness and a critical spirit get in the way of genuine love for our brothers and sisters. Now, does this mean that's always easy? Absolutely not. It is never easy. And we all know that that some of the greatest sources of frustration can often come within the context of our families. But that's what God calls us. That's what he calls this community to be. And he calls us to treat one another with all sorts of patience and love. And so one final reason... Of course, we are all part of this community together. If God has welcomed us in, then we should welcome one another. We should welcome one another because we are part of the family of God. But he also gives us one other reason. He says we, could wel- we should welcome one another because at the end of the day, God is the judge of all things. Look at verse 10. For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I want to be very careful in how I talk about this illustration. I want to tread carefully, but I have been thinking a whole lot about the Kavanaugh hearings for the past couple of weeks, and I've talked to some of you about it and vented some of my frustration uh, about it as well. And as I've processed it, I've really come to this conclusion that at least in that kind of cultural moment, both sides of the argument firmly believe that an injustice has occurred. When you think about it, both sides believe that. And both sides would probably also agree that we don't know all the facts and we wish we had more facts to have a greater understanding of what has happened. And I think what ha- what's happened is there's been so much anger that has ensued as a result of it. But I think much of that anger ensues from a result of feelings of injustice, both in good and true ways. But some of that anger as a result of injustice has become inordinate. I think all of us would probably agree about that. And I think what happens when our anger at injustice becomes inordinate, it is because we have forgotten that God is ultimately our judge. And when we forget that God is the judge of all things, then we think it is up to us, humanity, to get it right. We think that if we don't get it right as a humanity, then injustice will at the end of the day win. And that's what makes us really angry. But what this passage reminds us is this. 
It reminds us that there is an ultimate judge who will sort out all the wrongs and right in this world. Justice will be served at the end of the day by an ultimate judge. But newsflash, that ultimate judge is not you and I. It is not us. And I'm thankful for that at the end of the day because this judge, the ultimate judge, he knows all things. He knows the true intentions of the heart. And often life presents us with situations where we just need to trust him with these matters. Because you and I, we can become so quick to be judge, to be jury, to be executioner, but instead at times God calls us to let go of our self-righteousness and trust in the true judge who will bring an account of all things. And so, what is the application of all this? What is the application of, of, of Paul's principle, of all of these reasons why we should welcome one another? I think the application is really simple for all of us, and that is this, that we all, all of us, everyone, has all sorts of room to grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have room to grow in the gospel. One of my uh, favorite things to do Uh, with high school students is a little exercise that tries to highlight something. It tries to highlight the fact that all of us seem to have this inherent tendency in our hearts to rank each other in all sorts of value statements and in all sorts of categories. And I do it with high schoolers because it becomes uh, very, uh, uh, very clear very quickly. And what I do is I take this big sheet of paper and I draw a ladder on that big sheet of paper. And what I ask him is this. I said, I want you to take a minute and to rank the different groups that are in your high school, right? And they come up with all the different categories, uh, kids in the band, the jocks, the the, uh, popular girls, the cheerleaders, and they take that ladder and they rank them on the ladder. And what everybody instinctively realizes, it never takes them long to figure it out. They know instinctively. But what they recognize is if they, they know where they are on that ladder too. And they know if they're able to sit at the lunch table with this person, then they will climb up that social ladder. And so they all understand it. They all understand their role in it. They all understand how they participate in it. And then I tell them a little secret. I say this. I said, guess what? When you get older, it's all the same. It doesn't go away. Adults just get better at hiding it. But it is just as true in the adult world as it is in the high school. You see, what it is is that each one of us has an inherent tendency to rank others. To determine whether or not they are worthy of our time and worthy of our attention. And what is it that fuels that ladder for both high schoolers and we adults as well? Well, the thing that fuels that ladder is our own inherent arrogance and self-righteousness. You see, we have the same problem as those high schoolers. We have the same problem that the church in Rome has as well. And so what becomes the answer? What is is the thing that ultimately will will rid us of all this arrogance and rid us of all this self-righteousness? Well, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Because what does the gospel remind us? It reminds us that we, that we have no 
righteousness of our own. That all we have to stand before God is our sin and our mess and our unrighteousness. So what the gospel reminds us is that our righteousness and value doesn't come from us. Instead, it is rooted in the gracious gift of God. We have no room to be arrogant. We have no room to feel self-righteousness. Instead, what the gospel bids us to do is to humbly recognize the free gift of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, both the stronger member and the weaker member both needed to grow in the gospel. That's, that's Paul's point in this passage. He's saying that the weaker brother needs to experience in a fuller and greater way the outrageous freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The stronger ones in the church, they need the gospel to remind them of their own tendency towards arrogance and self-righteousness. The weaker brother, he needs to taste deeply more of his own unworthiness and then to drink deeply of the grace of God. The stronger brother, he needs to recognize his own pride. His own pride and self-righteousness is actually not a spiritual maturity, but a sign of his own spiritual immaturity, the sign that he himself is weak. And so, friends, what it reminds us is that the Christian life is all about constantly growing in this message of the gospel, learning how to apply it to each one of our deepest relationships and this community that we call the church. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by looking to Jesus. When you think about Jesus, he angered both the licentious crowd in his public ministry And he angered both the legalist crowd as well. In fact, everyone on every side were equally uncomfortable with Jesus. And that should be true of our lives as well. Everyone we rub shoulders with should be equally uncomfortable with us because we are followers of Jesus Christ who build our lives on the life-giving message of the gospel. And so, friends, be reminded of this. Be reminded that you have been freed from the burden of legalism. One commentator said, Legalists fall into thinking more about what he can do for God than what God has ultimately done for him. You see, we don't need laws in order to make us feel self-righteous or make us feel like we have earned our way back to God. We need to be reminded that we don't need to perform in order to achieve God's favor. That burden has been removed from us. Instead, the burden was put on Jesus, and because of that, we have been forgiven. But know that you have been freed You have been forgiven for a purpose. You have been forgiven and you have been freed so that you can love radically. To patiently bear the burdens of those that God puts in your path. Those whom he surrounds you with. Since it is the Reformation time of year, I will close with this uh, quote that I think encapsulates our passage perfectly from Martin Luther. He said this, which sounds like an oxymoron in some ways, but only in the gospel can this be true. He said this, 
A Christian man is a most free Lord of all, of all, subject to none. But at the same time, a Christian is also a most dutiful servant to all, subject to all. Let's pray.